Hello, everyone. So in this episode, I will be speaking with a colleague of mine here at Shuko International School. Ted Wallace is a teacher of theory of knowledge. And we're going to be talking about AI. This is a follow-up to the conversation that I had a couple of weeks ago with Kirby Ferguson. And it's a topic that we've been touching on in the last few episodes of our mind on music. What are the implications? You know, where is this going in terms of creation in general? Writing, songwriting, art creation, etc. I hope you enjoy the conversation that we have. And um, if you have questions or comments, if you like the episode, please do uh, let us know. Comment, like, and subscribe if you would like to continue to hear more and see more. Or if you'd like for us to talk about something else, let us know that as well. Thank you. Here is Ted Wallace, Shoko International School Theory of Knowledge teacher, chatting about the future of creativity. What's the message? Here we are, Our Mind on Music. Possibly three weeks ago, I spoke with Kirby Ferguson of Everything is a Remix, and this is not a conspiracy theory. So I knew I was going to have to have some semi-interesting questions for Kirby. Knowing that Kirby Ferguson is well-versed and a very intelligent guy, I came to this guy. Ted Wallace is our Theory of Knowledge teacher here at uh, Chico International School, as well as... I teach business management 11 and 12, uh, grade 10 social studies, and a grade. Okay. Whatever they tell me to do. <laughs> I said, Ted, help. What, are, what should I talk about? What kinds of questions... I had formulated some questions, and I wasn't sure if they were, you know, on point or interesting. So I put them to Ted. Long story short, final draft questions. If everything is a remix, what makes an original work original? To what extent is AI-generated creativity the same as human creativity? You added, how much credit does the creator of the AI deserve for the creation that the AI makes. You have now entered the matrix. Yeah. So that's interesting. One of the things that's happened is visual artists are complaining on two levels. One, that their art is being replaced by art that is created by machines that have no feeling about the art. They're not self-reflecting. They're not anything. They're just taking millions of images, turning them into a new similar image, mm. right? And the other thing is the images that are being pulled, those artists aren't being asked, can we use your image to create a new picture of a furry cat that's cute? You know, it's just being used because it's out there. So there's like creative aspect of what does that mean for us looking at art created by a machine that cares nothing about their own art? Hmm. And what does it mean for the people whose work is being used to put them out of business? There's also the copyright questions of that, like. Does the AI have the right to do that? We know that in in art, in music, um, in advertising, uh, legally, there's a certain percentage of any piece of art or advertising um, that you can use that is acceptable. I can take 10% of a book and I can reproduce that and use that in the school. I don't have to pay the artist for that or anything, right? That's within copyright law. Mm -hmm. um, same is true with a certain amount of art and these AIs are pulling like pixels, like part of it. And there's there's art in there that you, where you can actually see a portion of an artist's signature, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but it's such a small amount that you, you it's not a copyright infringement. Kirby Ferguson talked about that as well. He talks about that in his, in his video, Artificial Creativity. It's really interesting. One of the things that he says is, 
the fact that AI is using other people's art is not even for him really part of the discussion. It just, we all do that. We all go onto the internet, copy a photo from somewhere like Google, you know, so it's, it's out there and we use it. Always credit your sources. And there's also purpose of use. Like I very often use little snippets of music by somebody else in our videos for Our Mind on Music. But then I'm doing that to talk about that artist and their music. You're giving them credit. Giving them credit because I'm saying, this is an amazing song by Paul McCartney. Here's a sample of the song by Paul McCartney, who wrote this song. Right. <laughs> right. You know, right. it's like, it's, it's mind-numbingly giving credit, you know. But then Everything is a Remix is blocked on YouTube because in there he talks about Led Zeppelin and he plays a little snippet of Led Zeppelin's music. And then because of that, it's blocked because you're not allowed to use any of Led Zeppelin's music without explicit uh, permission. By the mid-1970s, Led Zeppelin are the biggest touring rock band in America. Yet many critics and peers label them as rip-offs. We could do a whole show on how much music Led Zeppelin has taken from other artists. Absolutely. And that's actually what the discussion is in the video. So maybe they didn't like that either. Yeah. And, you know, it's not that long ago that they finally won definitively the case that Stairway to Heaven is not a close enough copy of the song by Taurus, which good for them, I, yeah. I guess. I don't know what else to Debatable. say. Debatable. I mean, that's one area of authority that the legal system has said, right? The system itself is antiquated globally for what copyright is, where we are in this moment in time where <laughs> hold on to your britches because our lives are about to get shaken. Uh, by the current iterations of AI. Uh, Chat GPT-4, GPT-5 is already on the docket. It's going to disrupt every market. Every photographer, every visual artist, painter, sculptor, whatever, is looking at this idea. And there is a website where you can go, haveibeentrained.com. Mm. You can go onto that site and see if AI has used your work as source for millions of, of different things, you know, billions, I don't know. That's one of the steps is just for an artist to know if they've been used for, for a training set or not, right? Mm -hmm. And then what you were just saying is like the copyright law is just not caught up with it at this point. And one of the things is Kirby Ferguson was saying, just somebody please go out and create a website where you can put your art, your photographs, your drawings, whatever, and say, I am, by placing this here, giving you permission to use this for training sets, right? Lots of people, I think, would be of the mind that, yeah, if we're going to push that world forward, sure, here, use my stuff. Mm. And then there are going to be the people who don't put their art there, and they're safe. Because then copyright law would have to catch up with that and say, you can only use for training set purposes... We have something like that, though. I mean, not exactly, but I mean, that's essentially what Creative Commons is. Okay, yes. Right? I mean, it, it's Kirby's taking it to the next level, I think, by, by saying, like, this is, we're explicitly uh, denoting this space to be acceptable for AI training, right? Um, and currently, in the iterations of AI, they're only opening certain segments of the net, so to speak, hmm. to train that AI because it's scary. Like, <laughs> Because an AI is learning 24 hours a day, like it's like 20 million times our capacity to learn in the space of 24 hours. Because it doesn't right. stop. It just doesn't stop. Doesn't and, stop. And the processing time, and it 
it doesn't have the burden of having to think about whether its art is good or not. Because if I were able to create one million songs a day, mm. right, I wouldn't be that worried about whether song number eight hundred and fifty-eight thousand was good. Have you done that? Have you have you created a song using ChatGPT? Yes. Yes. But I did too. I did this the experiment that lots of people are doing. I mm. put in, okay, I want epic. Um, <clears throat> heavy metal influence, classical style, da 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 da, and they pumped out a song. I was actually trying to see what, for one of our episodes, I, I interviewed this um, singer songwriter who said that he's heavily influenced by Yes, Rush, and Parliament Funkadelic. Okay. And I was like, that's, that's <laughs> just where my mind goes with that kind of like prog rock mixed with funk, you know, right. very cool. <laughs> so I thought, hmm, I wonder if AI could help me on this. Yeah. So I plugged it in and it just sounded like every Jeep commercial where they're driving up a mountain. And I was like, where's the rush in there? Like, there's nothing clever or inventive about their timing or anything. It was just... They got the word epic, because apparently that's one that's searched a lot, I guess. Right. But the other parts, so long story short, yeah, I did it, and it plugged in some stuff. But, I mean, I was doing that 10 years ago on my phone. Like, I used to have an old Nokia where you could take a, a, a drum beat mm. from a set of six or something and put that in, and then take a bass line, and you put those together. And, of course, they fit because... They've set the tempo. They've set everything. And then there would be a guitar that goes down, 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 down. So have I just created a song? Yeah. Yeah. But but that's kind of like a narrow bandwidth of. Right. Right. Well, that was literally like when when I when I did it, I was with my daughter and I was like, let's see if it can write us a song. Let's write a song about unicorns and butterflies, butterflies. Right. Um, and I want it to be a four core. I want it to be the four chords of awesome, right? Make it easy on it. (laughs) (laughs) I need a pop hit. So this is what, this is what I want. Um, and it pumped it out and it was, you know, to hang out with my nine year old and have her sing it. And it was perfect for that. What did you use? Which app or website? Chat GPT four. I used, uh, or 3.5. I used, uh, perplexity. Perplexity, okay. Perplexity.ai, I believe. Okay, just because, like, people are going to be watching this going, I want to do that, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, like, this is our world now. (laughs) Like, there's no getting around this anymore. So that's part of it. Like, I mean, I um, I create a lot of songs just for the fun of it. And it's really not me sitting down and crafting a song. Like, I have done that where I sit down with a guitar and I think, these are my feelings right now. I want to get this on paper. I have to get this out, you know. Mm. And then I sit down and I do what I think is more like DJing. I don't think of it at this point in my life as songwriting per se. Other people would disagree with me. I'm saying that from my perspective, I go into GarageBand, I pick a drum loop. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. That's so cool, right? And then I find a bass part and I go, well, I like this little snippet of it. So can you differentiate how what songwriting would look like as opposed to DJing? So if you're saying that's DJing... Mm-hmm. Like, how do I differentiate between those two? Okay. So I guess my answer to that, I didn't think up that drum part. I didn't 
play that drum part and the little bit of creation that makes it a fuzzy line for me is that I do edit the loops. I don't just literally drag and drop loops. When the bass line goes, I go, well, okay, that was good for, I like the dong dong. Right? So mm -hmm. I just, I splice that, right? I cut that, and then I start transposing it. So now I am playing the song. I'm playing with a computer instead of a, a piano or a bass or whatever, but I'm playing it now because now I'm transposing each of those notes. So it goes dung, 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 dung. Okay. You know? So that's, for me, that's a fuzzy line between the two. Your question was, what's the difference between songwriting and DJing? For me, it has a lot to do with um, how I feel about it as I'm doing it. So when I sat down and I wrote... That's the operational definition. So when I think of a DJ, I think, oh, I'm going to the club and... Boom, 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 right? Or, or whatever that is. Taking other people's music, he's putting it together in a certain order, and maybe he's adding some, some loops or something over the top of it. Right. Who knows? Which is, I, th I think even right? the terminology is out of date. Because when I think of DJ... In, in fact, again, in one of our episodes, Leon and I talked about that, you know... Mm. Because we both said, when I think of DJ, I'm thinking like back in the day, somebody's basement and somebody's going. Because right? we're, we're old. Because <laughs> we're old, yeah. <laughs> High five. <laughs> but like if you think of Skrillex and um, all of these other people since that, you know, David Guetta and all of these people, they're not actually DJs only they're producers they're going into studios and using technology are creating brand new songs skrillex and diplo wrote the song where are you now with justin bieber Justin Bieber runs for president, I'm going to vote for him. Those guys weren't DJing. They are DJs. So they, they go and they do those shows and they do the... But it, to me, there's a difference there that's producing. Like, I hear you say that. They produced that song for Justin Bieber. Mm -hmm. They didn't DJ it for him. That's what I'm saying. Right? So they are DJs, but in this example that I'm using, they were doing more than DJing. They were producing a, a new song. They were taking sounds using synthesizers, using samples from other people, using sure. lots of different new tools to create something new. Sure. But again, like that distinguishing point of like, what's the difference between a DJ as opposed to a producer as opposed to a songwriter? Okay. You know? So I think in that example, they were all three. Okay. Because they were DJing in that they knew the technology to be able to find samples and use them amazingly well right are all three of those jobs yeah okay and are all three of them artistic in nature yes okay um I, i'm going to premise this i often when i think of the arts just very globally as as an area of knowledge when i think of the arts um i think of individuals or groups of individuals that have a message or something to say mm -hmm. yeah okay and that's when i look at what an individual might say this is art and i don't have to agree that it's good art 
but it's because there's a message behind and it. coming back to this this idea of like ai is there a, like is there a message behind it hmm. you know like it can crank out it can replicate language right it's a it's a it's a human language generator essentially um that sounds incredibly like a human um and that's what's so mind-blowing but is there an actual message behind it that that is amazing i was when you were asking me about the difference between dj and producing and songwriting i was thinking of way back when this stuff was just starting to be in the pop culture mind and um vanilla ice I thought about him earlier when he went doom 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 doom. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Because he has this interview that he said, "Yeah, everybody's saying that I ripped off Queen. They got this song that goes dun 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 dun." Yeah, from him, but it's not the same bass line. Uh, like it goes ding 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 ding. That's the way theirs goes. Ours goes ding 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 ding. Is this guy serious? Right? Like, what? What is he joking? And he wasn't right. So I was thinking stuff like that. Like some of this art is mm-hmm. just, it's so clearly a copy, so clearly soulless. But those two things are the separation. That's the difference. It's the difference between is there a message or isn't there? And you just pointed that out and I just went because that's the difference. Mm-hmm. Rap music is sampling. All they wanted was credit, and that's all we gave them, you know, sample by David Bowie and Queen. It's no big deal. I've been playing on on these AI systems, like, um, in education, like, I think this is something that we are going to have to come to terms with, as it is in, in music or the arts or anything else. There is an art, if you will, to using AI, like getting it to produce what you want it to produce. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not as simple as just I'm going to type in a sentence and this thing's going to intuit what it is that I actually want, right? I can't just type in, write me the next power ballad hit of tw- of the 2020s, right? Mm-hmm. It's not going to do that, right? But I, but you can use it in such a way, same, same for producing, say, essays or what lesson plans or whatever it is that you want to use it for there's a process do you see i'm speaking canadian there i heard that yeah, yeah thank you because i hang around so many canadians <laughs> i'm gonna get back to the u.s they'll be like what's wrong with you <laughs> what word did you say what, what was that <laughs> anyways there's a a process that goes on where you have to continue to it's like prompt engineering I, that's actually a very nice way to frame it out you, you have to engineer your prompts in order to generate the type of response that you want. So that's cool. I, prompt engineering. Prompt engineering. I've never even heard that. It's going to be the next next job of the future. <laughs> Wait, did you make that up? Prompt engineering? I was talking with Tyler Wells, okay. and, and we were talking about it. Okay. Prompt engineering. Prompt engineering is a concept in artificial intelligence, particularly in natural language processing. It involves discovering inputs that yield desirable or useful results. Prompt engineers are experts who write prose to test AI chatbots, identify errors, and improve their performance. It is an in-demand career that requires minimal coding experience, and many non-coders have achieved success in the industry. Now I've reframed how I'm thinking about this. Prompt engineering makes sense to me because when I first used uh, ChatGPT and I was I was saying, okay, write me, um, just seeing what it would do, write me a 500-word essay about Ella Fitzgerald. Yeah. 
Ella Fitzgerald was born in da 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 on her. Boring, right? <laughs> I'm like, oh, first of all, like for me, it was information I already knew because they're probably pulling it from Wikipedia mostly, right? Sure. And then it was just like so dry. And even the format of, you know, in conclusion or overall, uh, it finishes every piece like that, you know? Okay, so write me a 500 word essay that explains the cultural and musical impact of Ella Fitzgerald on 20th century music, you know, mm-hmm. better. And so what I'm doing is I'm learning how to use AI to convey my message. I'm not writing the words, but I'm learning how to make sure that my message comes through in the words that are written. So I did that for, um, in theory of knowledge, the students have to respond to a knowledge prompt. So it's a it's a question about knowledge. Metacognition, thinking about how you think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So where does knowledge come from? How is knowledge created? Um, uh, how does knowledge change? Right. How do you know what you know? Mm-hmm. Right. It's very abstract. And it, it would be very difficult for a 17, 18, 19 year old to write one of one of these essays, which they do. Uh, it would be equally difficult for a computer system to emulate that. And so I put this prompt in, said answer at 16 hour words, engineered my prompt and it came back and I read through it. And I was like, yeah, it's all right. You can grade it. You get a possible 10 marks, right? The very best gets 10 out of 10 marks. Uh, you rarely ever see it, see that in, in the diploma program. Okay. And so I read through and I'm like, yeah, it's all right. It's, it's vanilla, you know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's okay. I'd give it four marks, maybe five, maybe. Let me try to engineer that. Like, I want to hear a little bit more about um, what can you include the implications of intuition on this knowledge framework, right? Mm-hmm. And it spit something else about that was better. I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Can you include a real-life example that connects to politics today? Okay. Input something about uh, logical fallacies in Trump. I was like, well, that's low-hanging fruit. That's an easy one. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you give me a different political figure? So it spit something else out. And I was shocked. Like, I was amazed that I'm the one who's who's providing it with the, with the direction, mm-hmm. but what it's putting out is intuitive. See, you make me think now of... When I first started teaching, it was still very much textbook, like, mm. teaching. So couple decades ago yeah you know it was a long time ago and we were teaching from the textbook and literally it was like if we were teaching about let's say history we'd have to know what year mozart let's say i was doing a music history right what year was mozart born what year did he die what was his full name how do you spell that like stuff that knowledge and understanding yeah so like just identifying stuff you know and then um we moved into concept-based learning at the time I was doing the primary years program, PYP, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they were talking about, you know, you don't teach dinosaurs, right? Because dinosaurs is a list of facts. There was right. a dinosaur called a this and a that and a Tyrannosaurus and whatever. Teach extinction and talk talk about that as a concept of how do things that exist cease to exist, you know, which you can then apply to lots of different areas, Right. And for me, this was like taking it from one thing, Mozart, born 1756, to how do composers make an impact 
a lasting impact on the face of music, yeah. you know? So okay. I might do like power and causality as my, as my key concepts and a related concept maybe. And I'll, and I'll look at world war one and, and look at the causes. So I go through and I teach that segment in history, but I don't necessarily want them to memorize all the facts from that moment in time. If I'm teaching kids concepts, then they take that and then I can chuck them out and say, let's look at today. I want you to do the research, find aspects of causality, this big overarching idea mm. in today's world or historically or any moment in time that you're interested or any subject you're interested in. Like so there's there's been this niggling thought in the back of my head that I've been that I've been grappling with since over the last few months as 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 this chat GPT has, has gained more momentum. Um, one of the things, I mean, I use, I use everything's a remix for TOK. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's amazing, right? Um, it's mm -hmm. thinking about thinking it's, it's understanding the implications of just how interconnected the world is. Try, everything is. try this is not a conspiracy theory. I will. Holy cow. Like if we're talking about, art and music specifically we need to talk about in terms of art what are the implications moving forward conceptually i also teach the kids about uh marcel duchamp took this urinal right and at the time in the art world there was like a very contrite or perceived notion of what constituted art anything that fell outside of that was not art Mm -hmm. uh, but they're having a, some art exhibition. They said that they would accept anything as art, just had to be submitted. Okay. And so uh, Marcel Duchamp was creating ready-made art. Okay. And the premise behind ready-made art is, is pretty simple. It's taking an ordinary, mundane object and using that and saying, that's art, right? Because there's a message. And Marcel Duchamp's assertion was, it is not the act of creation that makes something art, it is the act of that artist who has something to say about something choosing that object. So something like a urinal that they made hundreds of thousands of those things. Mm -hmm. And him going to the hardware store and saying, that's the one, and then signing it, in doing that, he's making a commentary on the state of the art and how we perceive it, whatever that may be. And I believe that like, if we were to listen to like free jazz, and you've never listened to jazz before, mm -hmm. you'd be like, whoa, it would be an assault on your senses. Mm -hmm. But as you become more experienced in whatever it is you do, so whether it's music, whether it's food, what, whatever that is, you become more accepting or more open to appreciating a wider range of whatever that stimulus is. Does that make sense? Totally. So I heard years ago, um, there's a song called In C." by Terry Riley, okay? Mm -hmm. And what it is, it's a number of, I think it's 28 little snippets of music, one to two bars of really simple pieces of music. So mm -hmm. it could be dun, dun, and that's that's your snippet. Or it could be dun, 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 dun. That's a snippet. Okay. And what you do is you, the performer, whatever number of performers you want, will choose um, snippets to play. And that's really the only instruction. Okay. Pick a snippet, play. Change when you want. Change to a new snippet, you know? Mm-hmm. I think it was 1964 he wrote this. 
When I first heard that, I was like, neat. Can't listen to it for the 10 minutes that it runs, you know? Right. But then Ellie and I did a week without walls when we lived in Sumatra. We went to uh, Jogjakarta on on Java, I guess it is, the island. I can't remember. Yeah. Jogjakarta. And we did this uh, one-week course on the music, the gamelan music of Indonesia. And I, I just realized, oh my goodness, Terry Riley was just using gamelan concepts to apply it to other instruments, like a piano or a guitar or a whatever, you know, or a violin. You know what I mean? Right. I already thought it was neat, you know, but I didn't actually get it. I didn't understand the the message to use your, you know, your point that you're making here about the importance of the message. Yeah. Um, because the idea of, of gamelan is it's very communal. Okay. You really technically can't make gamelan music. And if, if I'm wrong, correct me, world. But um, technically, I would say you can't make gamelan music by yourself. Okay. You know, it's like a Chinese meal. You know, you get rice and you get sweet and sour pork, right? But if you ordered all the variety of things that you wanted, that's all going to come in large bowls. Mm-hmm. It's really strange to eat all that by yourself or you have a really big appetite. But really, the concept of the way the food is served is that it's for a group of people to share together. Okay, so I'm going to connect that. Okay. And I'm going to connect it to John Cage. Okay. Who you know is my favorite. I was going to say, I knew you were going to go you there. You knew I'd go there. <laughs> like, I have to go there. Just but, for the record, this is episode 24. I've kept John Cage out of this until now. Until <laughs> this moment right here. And now, a performance of John Cage's 433. Please welcome our soloist, William Marks. That's the moment, right? 4.33. Mm-hmm. Four minutes of 33 seconds of what? Audience noise. Right. What is he, what's the message, though? Like, And this is what I love, right? What that, is the message? What do you think? I, so the message for me is that oftentimes we put the focus on whoever the artist is up on, on the stage. Mm-hmm. And I think John's message to us is that music is happening all around us at every moment of the day. Mm. Like we think, you may think of it as noise or somebody may think of it as noise. Like I listen to acid jazz. I'm like, oh dear God. Right. <laughs> okay. But 
that those sounds suddenly force the audience to be part of that presentation. Like they are the music. And it may make them feel uncomfortable or, you know, like you hear the baby crying or you hear somebody coughing, you know, and and then the the orchestra shuffles at a certain point. Mm-hmm. But that in that in itself is the message is that, you know, it's all around you. Like the very idea that music is only confined to this one way of presentation, not dissimilar to Marcel Duchamp, who I was talking about before, who said, you know what? There is more ways to perceive art or to enjoy art or to have a message mm. that you're sharing with a wider community. That's that's interesting because I think about, um, is it called What's Going On? It's the Marvin Gaye song about war. Brother, brother. Mm. I love that song. Oh, yeah. At his voice and everything. People recording music at that time were going through this concept of including the audience, like there, somebody had made the statement that, you know, studio recordings are so dry and sterile, it loses so much of the aspect of the live performance where you have the audience noise included, you have the clapping at the end and people singing along. And to make that point, they have a studio full of people talking and they fade that out. And then as you get into the song, that disappears. So maybe that was for radio play purposes. They thought nobody's going to listen to the the three and a half minute song with people saying what's happening in the background, you know, <laughs> what's happening. <laughs> so, um, so that was the concept is that they wanted to include the, the audience in that moment. Right. And just enough so that it was, um, something that people could understand, get the message and then move on into this beautiful song with this really, uh, deep, Meaningful message and beautiful voice, etc. Okay, so let's go back a decade, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. You can probably go a little bit further than that. We can get into like Elvis mm-hmm. and the advent of the television, right? Mm-hmm. You'd have these musicians on a lot of variety shows. Mm-hmm. A variety show. Oh but yeah. Does anyone even know what that is anymore? Well, <laughs> honestly, I, I've been reading about this. A lot of people are saying that podcasting will become the next sort of like iteration of that. Like the, the radio show has already been 100% like um, Casey Kasem, yeah. right? 100% reproduced in a modern style as a podcast. Sure. You can go on there, they'll play the song, they'll comment on the song, and that's the whole show. Everything's a remix. Everything's a remix. So that idea, though, is like used to watch these musicians like, like Elvis on TV because that's the advent. Suddenly TV is ubiquitous. It's mainstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, the majority of people, at least in the United States and Canada, have have a TV, mm-hmm. right? Um, and this is how people are 
getting their news. This is how they're finding out. I'm, I'm feeling so old because I'm thinking about the first time I saw somebody who had two TVs in their house. <laughs> and we were like, dude, what does your dad do for a living? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, when you'd listen to that music, you'd hear the hear the girls and, yeah! Mm-hmm. yeah. Right? Yeah. You see the same, the same sort of recreations happening in the 60s. Mm-hmm. A lot... The Beatles. Yeah, sure. And doing concerts and recordings where they where they're in a communal type area. It's the sixties, right? It's mm-hmm. co- everything's communal. Um, even even before, like when you say that, I think you're thinking of like the hippie type stuff, right? But well, yes, yes, obviously. But but I want to hold your hand. Doesn't that song? Doesn't the recording of that song start with the screaming? It's not that it's new, it's just kind of taken it to the 70s frame of mind, mm-hmm. but they've been doing it already, like they were doing it. Yes. Are they doing it on radio? Before TV, right? Um, yes, actually, because I'm a huge Jack Benny fan. Okay. And there were lots of times where he would actually break the fourth wall, so to speak, in radio and speak to the audience. Like if they made a mistake, they'd say, Mary, give me that line again, you know, and he would speak to the audience and ask them to react in a certain way or he'd make a comment or a joke about it, you know? Yeah. And so without having the audience there, without having them laugh at that joke, it wouldn't make sense. That was he. He started in 1938 or something like that. Okay. Canada Dry was his first sponsor, by the way. Just a little Canada moment. All right. <laughs> we all love Canada. Yeah, that's the whole process, eh? So yeah. <laughs> okay. So yes, all of that is is starting and then moving forward. So now I'm going to try to connect pieces. Okay. You're talking about, you know, let's say First World War and what are the, all of the things that, that pulled a huge group of people together, said, okay, we're going to go fight each other, okay? Mm-hmm. This guy here is going to shoot this other guy and that's going to spark a whole bunch of stuff because you guys are already in this arena. You understand what's going on here and all you need is a little spark, right? Sure. Okay. So then we move forward and now you and I are shifting the focus to art and we're looking at inclusion of the audience and inclusion of outside um, influences mm. like Terry Riley looking at gamelan music, right? Sure. I wrote that question on, I think it was on Substack. I asked, did um, did Terry Riley know gamelan music? Is that really where it came from or is that just me making that up? And Ted Gia, who is this amazing author of the history of jazz, for mm-hmm. example, um, Amongst other books, he replied, he said, I met Terry Riley, and I can say for sure he knew gamelan music at that point in his life. And I was like, "Interesting, wow. So then we, we, we've shifted it to art. And then, because we're teachers, we shifted to education. And how do we help our students understand all of this by conceptual learning, mm-hmm. right? By looking at concepts rather than dates. What year was this person born? Who was? What was the name of the cafe that... Right. So, so just to hinge that back and, and, and specifically what I said was continuity and power, but really what I've been speaking about most within the, the body of this conversation is continuity, 
right? That idea of like the transfer of, we're talking about knowledge, right? The transfer of knowledge, the transfer of ideas. And I can take this big idea of continuity and I can use it to discuss global politics, uh, world power, war, music, how we transfer those ideas within music, how we share ideas. Um, all of these I'm hinging to this overarching idea of continuity, mm -hmm. right? Fantastic, yes. And so now as my teacher brain is saying, okay, how do I move forward understanding all of this and how do I help my students understand that one of the answers to that is conceptual learning. Like somebody said, you know, when we when I first started talking about this idea with with colleagues back in the early 2000s, mm. you know, they said, just change the question. Don't ask what year the guy was born. Ask what was his impact and why was that impact? Uh, why was that so important for the world? And the types of questions that is now built into what you teach. And I've said to you before, I think TOK is probably moving forward in the world, the most important course that we teach at this school. Hmm. And I'm not a TOK teacher, so, <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> I, I try to teach music with that in mind. Students choose what music we play. I don't choose the repertoire for my classes, right? The students, as much as, as far as they are capable of doing it, arrange the performances that they do. So like the high school students, for example, I say, here are the four chords. I want it to be in this key. Now you guys tell me the rest. You know how to build those chords. So when I tell you it's an A minor, you know that that means A, C, and E are the three notes included. Who's going to sing the A? Who's going to sing the C? Who's going to sing the E? Are you going to add passing notes? All of those things. Mm. I guide them, but I get them to have to think through the creation process. It's maybe maybe somebody somebody say, well, then you don't have a job, you know? No, it's well, that is the job. It's yeah. way harder than me sitting down, knowing what I know, and I just voice it. So, so you're you're a prompt engineer. Yes, I'm glad you brought that back. Thank you. That's so circling back. Leon would say that's circling back to the <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so coming full circle, and that, and that is very much what we do in a with this AI is that engineering, right? Thank you. So, you it's, I I feel like you're interviewing me, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> when I think about my profession, I, I think about I often think, and this is true whether we're talking musicians through my lens that. It's either a job, it's a profession, or it's a craft. And you get to choose what, how you want to approach what it is you do in life. And for me, as a teacher, I want this to be a craft. Mm -hmm. I, want, I want to be an artist at what I do in the classroom. Um, and the teachers that have had the biggest impact on me are really good at asking questions. Mm. Thought-provoking on point, fantastic timing. Look, I got goosebumps. Wow, right? literally. That's amazing. Um, for, for me, in the classroom, it is, it is an active dialogue that occurs. I see my role in, in the classroom to go, okay, what's your evidence for that point of view? Mm -hmm. Can we consider how someone else might perceive that? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, that's my job. Yeah. And so there, we come back, finally, we've been twisting and weaving and collecting, mm. and we're back to AI. Yes. Because AI currently has none of that. Currently. Mm. Recognizing that 
you know, I spoke with uh, songwriter Gary Darnell Wortham, and he said something. Um, he said, you know, you guys are talking about AI, but actually none of the real questions about this become a thing until it's AGI, artificial general intelligence, sure. which is that moment where AI becomes aware of itself. Yeah. That's... I, right now we, we, the, we call it narrow or general AI, right? Okay. So like a broadband AI, right, that can think for itself and, and become self-aware. So that's one of the questions that comes up is, okay, so the Terminator, like, machines take over. They did not load that up with Merovian's law. Robots will do no harm. Robot. He has three general... It's the ideas that it raises. There are people out there who are saying, no, this whole AI thing is leading towards the extinction of human race. So I've, I've heard that argument, and, and certainly it could. I mean, but we can, also, we can also look at it from another lens, right? Because what is AI? What is any of this but a, a mental scaffold, right? We already use tons of mental scaffolds. So we have the capacity to think about just a, a certain quantity of thought um, so that we can solve problems. Right. Okay. And some of us have a greater capacity. Some of us have a lesser capacity. Okay. So we we erect scaffolds or support so that we can extend our thinking. We do it. We do it with our phones. We do it with our computers. We do it by writing notes. It's simply an extension. AI is very much an extension of that. Right. And so while we may get these views of, oh, the Terminator, because that's what we grew up with in the mm -hmm. 80s. Right. Mm -hmm. There's the other idea of thinking, like, think of it as wetware and hardware, right? What happens when we start to embed that? What happens when we move to the moment of singularity? Singularity, where, that was the where you yeah. Where you can no longer separate artificial intelligence or exo-intelligence, if you will, and it gets incorporated into our actual being. I think what we're talking about is whether AI should be feared, used, both, you know, like, to what extent is this a good thing for us? The message that I'm getting from you is that at this point in time, it depends on how we use it. I think hiding our heads, heads in the sand isn't going to fix it, right? Uh, but I think it's scary. Like, I think it could, I mean, it, it can absolutely destroy us. I think it poses an existential risk. But I think it, there's also, it can be used with the rate of learning to fix all of the problems that we've that we've caused i mean it can it's not a it's not a yes or no this is not black or white it's a con continuity between i couldn't care less but, to it's the end of the world as we but, know it but do we have the intellectual capacity to put in place uh the stoppers or retarders or to limit it while we figure out what we don't know like we don't know what we don't know and this, this thing that can learn so quickly, teach itself, uh, will surpass us. But it doesn't um, know what it knows. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't... Sure. It and, it's and, just and, it, and it just follows parameters, right? right? So if you say, fix global warming. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. And it may do that, but in so doing, it may cause a famine. Oh, yeah. I was right? thinking that it would actually just not, it would say, I need more input, right? It would be like Douglas Adams. The, the well, it could, but if it's teaching itself, it gets to the point where it's self-replicating itself. Like, it understands and it's teaching itself to solve those problems. It may not take into account the other parameters, like human life. Like, maybe, maybe in order to fix global warming, it decreases the amount of oxygen content. So everybody starts to slowly suffocate. Hmm. Because it doesn't take into account 
human life. Okay, well, super, we'll just put that parameter in that it doesn't. Okay, so it does that, but then it doesn't take into account ocean acidification, right? I mean, the systems that we're talking about are incredibly complex. So if we bring it back to music, if we're looking at music creation, like one of the things that I would think is that I'm going to stop thinking that a, a job of the future is writing music for a Coca-Cola commercial because AI could probably do that better than I could. Whereas if I become a singer-songwriter with an acoustic guitar and I go back to the coffee shop days, you know, we create a niche for something that AI couldn't do. So AI could either lead to incredible inequity in the world, meaning how do, how do we find purpose and um, ensure that people care for themselves, mm-hmm. or it can turn into something that's more like Star Trek, like think how do, how do we find purpose now that we have this thing that helps us do all the worky type stuff? Sure. Like, so what do you <laughs> do in a society when scarcity is no longer an issue, you move into abundance, right? Mm-hmm. Economics, study of scarcity, scarce resources, so on and so forth. But but this poses questions that would be posed in Star Trek. Thank you very much, Ted Wallace, for coming in and speaking with me about these topics, about AI, about how we learn, how AI learns, and how we can start to look at putting those things together, using it for the best possible purposes. As a musician, I'm looking at it as how do I work this into what I do, what I create? How, as a teacher, can I help students navigate this world that we're moving into? I hope that you'll follow us through this journey as we look at music, old and new, and also how music has been created historically, how it's being created currently, and how music will be created and perceived in the future. Thank you very much for watching, everyone. Please leave a comment, share, and subscribe. That helps us a lot when you subscribe. Thanks for joining us, guys, and we'll see you next week on Our Mind on Music. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Good night!